Welcome to Role-Playing History, the podcast where we examine the history of role-playing games. I'm Wayne Davis, and I'll be your guide for this tour. Episode 2, The Granddaddy of Them All. Last week, we examined the inspiration for role-playing games, which were war games. During that discussion, I noted that the 1971 release of the war game rules Chainmail, written by Gary Gygax, led to the creation of Dungeons & Dragons. I further noted the importance of the Chainmail rules because of how many of those rules formed the basis of D&D, which, by the way, is what I'm going to be calling it from this point on. Fewer words, less to type, less to say. You can appreciate it. And... Listen, all of the smart-ass jokes I made last week aside, when you mention a role-playing game to the average person, D&D is what they think of. Released in 1974, D&D has been published non-stop ever since. Through three companies, six editions, I say six editions because I consider edition 3.5 to be its own separate edition, and a ton of controversies, D&D is still widely accepted to be the most widely played role-playing game in the world. However, the history of its creation is not without controversy all its own, and the plan here is to clear up as much of it as we can while still remaining respectful to all of those involved. Now, the simple history of the creation of D&D usually goes like this. Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson, being the avid medieval war gamers that they were, got together to create the role-playing game we now know as Dungeons & Dragons. To quote Obi-Wan Kenobi, that's true from a certain point of view. The whole story is a hell of a lot more complicated. So, let's get into it. It is true that Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson were both very avid wargamers. Various interviews and biographical pieces on both men have detailed their love for medieval war games. Each man had his own game that he ran, with several friends being parts of their different groups. However, the genesis for D&D isn't in 1971 with the creation of Chainmail, like I reported last week. It actually goes back three years earlier with Dave Arneson. Now again, according to multiple sources, Dave Arneson was what I would define as a genuine game innovator. Sure, he loved war games, but he was one of those people who never seemed to be happy with the rules that he could get his hands on to use for a game. So he was constantly tinkering with the rules in an attempt to have his game be exactly what he wanted it to be. He also made it a point to share what he was doing with other war gamers by publishing his changes in various war gamer magazines. His friends, who were helping him with his rule changes, did the exact same thing. So, in 1968, Arneson's friend David Wesley invented a game called Bronstein, which was a Napoleonic-era war game. This game had several new innovations in it. First off, it mandated a referee, which we discussed in last week's episode. It had been a part of military war games for a really long time, but had never really been a part of commercial or or home games. The second major change was that players had to play as individuals rather than entire units of soldiers. Again, this was a big change because war gaming had always been two players 
with each player in charge of a large number of units, or maybe four players, again, in charge of units, a unit being 10, 20, 30, 40 of a particular thing. So it was one player, one character. It wasn't really called a character, but that's what it evolved into. And this was a totally new idea. Then Arneson, with Wesley's blessing, expanded on Bronstein, creating Blackmore. So while that was going on, let's take a half a step back and see what Gary Gygax was doing. Now, Gygax did write and publish Chainmail in 1971. However, it's been noted by several authors that Chainmail was not a wholly original work. In a classic gamer move, Gygax expanded on rules that were originally created by Jeff Pervin. However, and I cannot stress this enough, Chainmail was not a role-playing game. It was always intended to be a better set of medieval rules for wargaming. Shortly after Chainmail's release, Gygax did create a supplemental set of rules that added some of the things that we'll see later on in D&D, like armor class and hit points. It should also be noted that that set of rules was based on Lord of the Rings, Conan the Barbarian, and other fantasy works that he enjoyed. And you might want to write that down as a note, because we're going to come back to that a little later on. Arneson soon got a hold of Chainmail and the supplemental rules, and he expanded Blackmore, folding in some of what he had enjoyed from Chainmail and then adding some of his own twists. He added things like character classes, experience points, and level advancement, and those were just three of many ideas that he added to Blackmore over time. Also, and this is a big break from his wargaming past, he didn't really use miniatures. I mean, he had maps for his games to show where you were and where you were going, but everybody who played Blackmore has stated that it was always intended to be what's known as theater of the mind. By all reports, Blackmore was much more like D&D than Chainmail had ever been. Well, eventually, Gygax was invited to play in Arneson's Blackmore game. These two men did know each other. They'd worked together on some war game rules once before. By all reports, Gygax fell in love with the game and asked Arneson for a copy of the rules. Now, this is where things get interesting. Arneson didn't really have a printed set of rules. In fact, those closest to him at the time have reported that Arneson never really organized his rules into a coherent document. He did have his big three-ring binder of notes, but as somebody who's been running games for a long time, I can tell you, just because you have the binder doesn't mean anyone else can understand what the hell you wrote down in it. So, Gygax convinced Arneson to allow him to organize the rules into a more digestible format, which he did, adding some of his own thoughts and ideas as he went along. Now, to this point, everything still seemed to be good with the relationship between Arneson and Gygax. However, and sadly, this would not continue to be the case. In 1974, the first edition of D&D was published, giving creative credit to both Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson. Editions of the first printing were literally assembled in Gygax's kitchen, with actual wooden boxes getting stickers hand-put on them to identify the game. And on a side note, one of those first-run editions recently sold at an auction for $66,000 U.S. It should also be noted that in this first run, you had to buy chainmail. 
because you needed the chainmail rules in order to manage combat. Oh, and backing up a half a step, Tactical Studies Rules, or TSR for short, had been formed in 1973 by Gygax and a fellow by the name of Don Kay to specifically handle the publication and distribution of D&D. And on a further side note, I mean, hell, we're already headed in the weeds, let's just continue the trip. The first game released by TSR was a miniatures game called Cavaliers and Roundheads. It was released specifically to make money that they could use for D&D's release. As TSR geared up for the D&D release, a fellow named Brian Bloom joined the company with the express purpose to help drum up the financing needed to print the game. Obviously, he succeeded, and the first run was 1,000 games. They were priced at $10 US each. Oh, and to buy the dice that you'd need, it'd be another $350. Everything sold out in 10 months. So, in early 75, they tried again, printed another 1,000. Sold out six months. Now, around this time, Dave Arneson joined TSR to help out with marketing. And later in 75, another 2,000 copies were printed. They sold out in five months. Okay, so let's step back and check this for a second. From January 1974 to roughly March of 1976, 4,000 copies of D&D were produced and sold. Nowadays, there are those who might see that as a major defeat. But you have to remember that this was not only a brand new game, but it was a brand new style of game. So to move 4,000 copies in right about two years, that's astounding. Another note from 1975, the Greyhawk supplement was released. Credited to Gygax and Robert J. Kuntz, it was actually a printing of the rules they were using in their home game with new character classes, spells, and monsters that hadn't been in the original core game. And for the longtime gamers that listen, this is where the Thief and Paladin classes were first published, as well as the first time we ever got 7th, 8th, and ninth level spells. However, Gygax intentionally put nothing about the actual setting of Greyhawk into this book, and there are two schools of thoughts on why. One, it was assumed players would want to create their own campaign worlds to play in. Well, of course they would. Why are you just going to run something that I created for you? We'll get to that in a minute. Two, Gygax didn't want to spill all his secrets, both from a financial and a creative standpoint. After all, would the money he made be worth having to create a whole new setting for the players he was running games for all the time? Maybe, maybe not. It's also important to note not only that Greyhawk was the first D&D supplement, it was really the first game supplement ever printed. I mean, before this, if you wanted to change or alter some rules, you basically just wrote up a whole new set of rules. Supplements just weren't heard of. I mean, the closest thing to a gaming supplement in the war game only time would be maybe an article or two where you printed some thoughts on some game ideas that you'd been trying out. That's it. Next up, Arneson got the chance to bring Blackmore to the world. Sort of. I mean, the Blackmore supplement was released later in 1975, but it had nothing about the actual Blackmore setting in it, kind of like what Gygax did with Greyhawk. What it did have were two new classes, the Assassin and the Monk, 
as well as new rules for underwater combat. Even better, Blackmore included the first ever published RPG adventure, The Temple of the Frog. Now, it's been asked why Arneson didn't publish setting information for Blackmore, and unlike Gygax, Arneson doesn't really seem to get the same harsh treatment from historians or critics or whatever we're calling them. It's believed by many that the reason for him not doing so is, is twofold. One, he was rather notorious about being, uh, let's just say, not the best at keeping track of where he put things. In fact, it's been reported that the final draft of Blackmore had been lost for a couple of weeks before it was found and finally submitted. Second reason, there are those who believe that even if Arneson wanted to print setting information, after Gygax chose not to do so with Greyhawk, there was probably no way that Gygax, who was a TSR owner, was going to allow Arneson, who wasn't a TSR owner, to print setting information about Blackmore when he himself did not publish setting information about Greyhawk. Now, I can't stress enough. This is just a theory from a few people that were around TSR at the time. They admit that this is a theory they've pieced together from information here and information there, and never anything they actually heard from Gygax himself. I'm including it here just to provide a complete thought on the record. Anyway, by the end of 1975, both Gygax and Arneson had put rules from their own adventures out, and D&D was well on its way to changing the gaming world. I guess it'd be a shame, then, if something controversial came along. Oh, look, something controversial came along, because of course it did. This one's a pretty big one, too. Remember when I told you a few minutes ago to, to note something about Gygax's influence by Lord of the Rings? Yeah, well, the halflings, elves, dwarves, orcs, rangers, and such that were a part of D&D caused the Tolkien estate to take issue with D&D. In fact, the halfling was originally just straight up called a hobbit. That, along with the Ent and Balrog, yes, those were actually in the original game as well, were direct ties to Tolkien works and were changed to avoid legal issues. And while Gygax had played down the influence for decades, in 2000, he finally admitted the influence that Tolkien's work had had on the creation of D&D. Another controversy at this time was in the artwork being used for Greyhawk and several of Gygax's other works. Greg Bell was Gygax's artist of choice. However, Gygax had a habit of contacting Bell very late in the creative process. Now, if you're any sort of creative type, you understand just how important it is to have plenty of time to create. Well, with short timelines to get his work created, Bell would occasionally copy figures from comic books. One of the most infamous is the sword-wielding warrior on the cover of the Greyhawk Supplement. He got that from a 1974 issue of Eerie, and the original is called Dax the Damned. You can actually Google it and see the picture. Now, my research into the artwork didn't turn up any legal challenges to these behaviors, but the fact that they happened and are basically acknowledged to have happened is a telling sign for things to come, and it is the reason why I've included it here. By the way, as a note, moving forward, I'm not going to note when every single D&D product was published. I mean, geez, if I did that, we need about a week's worth of podcast to list everything, and I really don't think Wizards of the Coast wants to pay me for that. 
However, if you work for Wizards of the Coast and you are willing to pay me to do that, hit me up at the email. <laughs> I give it at the end of the show. What I will be doing is noting significant historical releases. My hope is that that brings us in somewhat under an hour. I don't know, but let's get on with it. So with all of that in mind, 1977 is the next big historical date. This is when the original D&D basic set was published. This was that iconic red box so many of us got started on. It was designed for players to play D&D from levels 1 to 3, along with just enough of the rules to get new players up and running. It should also be noted that this set was written by John Eric Holmes, who chose to write in a more open, improvisational style of gaming, as opposed to Gygax, who wanted rules for everything that could possibly happen in a game. The basic set was the beginning of a 23-year split of the brand. The basic set was called D&D, while the Monster Manual, which was released shortly thereafter, was the first part of what was known as Advanced Dungeons & Dragons, heretofore known as AD&D. The thought process was, at least according to historians, this. The basic set was going to be the thing to get the novice players in the door. After all, with its impressive art design, plus the fact that it was in a box, it meant it could be stocked at toy stores, put in a game section. And by the way, that's where I got my first copy of the basic set as a 10-year-old in 1983. AD&D would be, and was designed for, experienced gamers. Again, Gygax wanted to have rules for all the issues that could ever potentially come up, and in his mind, it just had to make sense that experienced gamers were going to be the ones that were going to want that. Something else that happened along this time was that Dave Arneson left TSR. In fact, as the D&D, AD&D split began, Arneson's name was on the D&D product as a creator, but not the AD&D material. This would prove to be a problem, as part of Arneson's agreement with TSR was royalty payments on all D&D products. TSR's argument was that due to how different AD&D was, well, it wasn't Arneson's game anymore, so he didn't deserve any royalties. I think you can guess how well that went. Arneson filed five separate lawsuits between 1979 and 1981. And in fairness, all he wanted is what he was promised. In March of 1981, Arneson and Gygax came to an agreement. Arneson and Gygax would be credited as the co-creators on all D&D products, and Arneson would get a 2.5% royalty on all AD&D products moving forward. Arneson then dropped the suits. I would love to say that this ended all the beef between these two guys, but it didn't. But it is the end of their beef for this episode. So getting back into the timeline, the AD&D Player's Handbook was released in 1978 and the Dungeon Master's Guide in 1979. Yeah, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking of these dates going, how in the hell does it make sense to release the three core books over a three-year span? And, and while we're at it, why do you release the Monster's Manual first before the Player's Handbook and the Dungeon Master's Guide? And I'm going to be honest, it didn't make any sense to me either. But for TSR in the late 70s, apparently it did work. They, they sold a lot of copies and they made a lot of money. But I would consider this to be yet another entry in that category of signs of things to come. In 1980, Greyhawk came to AD&D. 
The difference this time is that Gygax actually put campaign setting information into the supplement. In fact, Greyhawk would be the default setting for a number of supplements throughout the life of AD&D. 1984 brought Dragonlance, which proved to be a whole lot more than just a campaign setting. It was also a series of best-selling novels that are actually among the best-selling fantasy novels of all time. This setting is also very different from what had been previously published, and I, I really can't do it justice trying to explain it. Pick up one of the novels you get a really good idea about what the setting's like. Also, during this time, the D&D portion of the brand got an expert set for levels 4 through 14, followed later by the companion rules for levels 15 through 25, the master rules for levels 26 through 36, and immortal rules, that's when your group is basically God. Hardcore gamers might remember these as the blue, teal, black, and gold boxes, and yes, you could still get them at toy stores. I will speak from experience because that's where I got them. Each one of these boxes expanded the rules for players and brought new races, classes, spells, and adventures to the game. There was also the fact that the divide was expanded and promoted between D&D &D and AD. I mean, originally it was thought that after you leveled out on the basic set, you'd just kind of shift over to AD&D. Now that idea had been discarded, and exactly what was going to happen was... Eh. In 1985, the title Oriental Adventures was released. Now at the time, it was a well-received, widely used source, both for setting and for the materials inside of it. Today, it finds itself in a bit of controversy, beginning with its name. And inside the book, there are a number of references that are considered to be racist, insensitive, or just generally inappropriate. However, there are those who still love this setting, they still appreciate this setting, and still work to bring it into the modern editions of Dungeons & Dragons. Hey, while we're speaking of controversies, this is probably a good place to discuss the batch of controversies D&D found itself in in the 1980s. Christian groups, parental groups, the media, D&D seemed to be getting hit from all sides. Christian groups tended to hit D&D with that brush of Satanism. And while there were a number of different reasons why, more often than not, it's because of the fact that devils and demons were monsters that were usable in the Monsters Compendium. Mind you, they weren't playable characters. They were the monsters you were disposed to destroy. And there were some religious groups that thought it was mighty, I don't want to say satanic, but blasphemous would probably be another way to put it, that we have clerics and paladins, you know, these holy warrior type of characters, but they're not, um, just to be blunt, they're not worshiping the Christian God. And again, that was blasphemous or satanic or you get the point. Parental groups used some of these same tactics, though they and the media would add witchcraft to the mix. I have no idea how the hell they came up with that. I mean, I get that there were a lot of spells that characters could cast in the game, but witchcraft? Really? Now, if a parental group was complaining about the artwork, you might be able to argue they had a case. I mean, holy crap. Chainmail bikinis were in, like, every issue and a lot of bare breasts on the monster types, and a lot of skin shown on the females, and 
you know what? I'll give the parental groups that one. If they want to have a complaint about the artwork, I'll give them that one. Look, I'll fully admit that the artwork of first and second edition could be sexist or sexual from time to time. No doubt. However, I, I would like to throw a plug out here if I can. Jolly Blackburn, who's the author, creator of Knights of the Dinner Table, he has skewered this subject on so many different occasions. Trust me, check out his back work, kenzerco.com. It's hilarious. It pokes fun. And it kind of gives you a reason to understand why so many people thought that stuff was just so sexualized. And, and yes, by today's standards, definitely wrong. Hell, I could almost argue by those standards in the 80s it was wrong. But anyway. Another controversy magnified by the media was a series of accusations that D&D led people to suicide or even murder. There were several somewhat high-profile cases in the 1980s, and one of them even led to a movie called Mazes and Monsters, which, by the way, starred a fairly young Tom Hanks. The overall point of the movie was that people got hung up on the fantasy aspect of D&D and lost their grip on reality. This was also the point that some tried to make in these suicide and murder cases. Look, I'm, I'm just going to stop this crap, right? Right here. D&D &D isn't responsible for murders and suicide any more than listening to Metallica or Ozzy Osbourne would be. Unfortunately, a lot of those claims come from people who didn't want to believe that their loved ones could have possibly done what they did. And look, I am very sympathetic to those who lose loved ones. But throwing crap at the wall to see what sticks is not the best way to get the answers you're looking for. And another thing we need to consider, role-playing games do not cause mental health issues. In fact, I have personally seen them help kids with mental health issues, as well as kids and adults with serious social disorders. Okay, I get it. At this point, you're going to be like, all right, big man, what are your bona fides on that? Spent five years working with kids in special education classes and 10 years working in the field with mental health consumers. Not going to try to toot my own horn here. You know what? Hell with it. Yeah, I'm going to toot my own horn with this one. In this case, I know exactly what the hell I'm talking about. Anyway, off the soapbox, back into the history. In 1986, Gary Gygax sold his shares in TSR and left the company. Now, I'm going to cover all this more next week when we do a deep dive into TSR. But for now, we need to understand that from this point moving forward, D&D &D and AD&D &D were left without either of their creators overseeing the day-to-day -day development. One of the most popular settings in D&D &D was released for AD&D &D in 1987, The Forgotten Realms. This setting has produced a number of supplements, many of which are still considered to be some of the best the game has ever produced. Novels, video games, and yeah, by the way, it is still selling a ton of product in the 5th edition, because, yeah, of course they updated it for 5th edition. 1989 was another milestone year. This is when 2nd edition AD&D was released. Now, learning their lesson from the initial AD&D release, the Player's Handbook, Dungeon Master's Guide, and three volumes of what they were now calling the Monstrous Compendium were released at basically the same time, giving gamers the opportunity to start the new and updated rules immediately. Also, in yet another sign of things to come, the titles The Complete Fighter's Handbook and The Complete Thief's Handbook were released. I say in another sign of things to come because before second edition came to an end in 2000, the Complete series included a volume on every race, every class, just about every spell. Look, basically 
anything anybody writing for TSR and later Wizards of the Coast could come up with. And with a price running about $25 to $35 US each, TSR made a ton of money off of me. I, I mean, them. <laughs> yeah, them. One more big item from 1989 was the space-centric setting called Spelljammer. Now, I have to admit, I have never played this setting, but I know a lot of people who swear by it, and they've actually worked on their own to make sure this setting gets updated every time a new edition of D&D is released. To me, that says a lot for what it means to the people who love it. In 1990, D&D went into gothic horror with the Ravenloft setting. While it wasn't as successful as Forgotten Realms, quite seriously, what was, it had, and still has, a very loyal group of supporters. Again, this is a setting that has seen itself being updated for each new edition of D&D, either by Wizards of the Coast or by the fans themselves. By the way, I know you're wondering, what is Wizards of the Coast? I'll, I'll get into that in a minute. Just stay with me. The Dark Sun setting was released in 1991. It brought a low-magic, post-apocalyptic setting to D&D, set in a hostile desert world. Again, the loyal fans of this setting have made sure it gets updated for new systems, even though it really didn't do major business when it was initially released. Al-Qadim was released as a setting in 1992, bringing a Middle Eastern feel and flair to D&D. Now, maybe it was the timing in which it was released, Maybe it was the beginning of a setting fatigue, but the sales on this setting were also low, which led to it getting fewer supplement releases than the previous settings. However, as I've said more than once in the last ooh, three minutes or so, it has a very loyal following. You get the point. The final new setting for AD&D came out in 1994. Called Planescape, it had a very crossing the planes of existence kind of vibe to it. Again, sales were okay, but not overwhelming, but like several of the previous settings, it has a support group that swears by it and makes sure it gets updated with every new edition. Now, I mentioned something about setting fatigue when I was talking about Al-Qadim. This is something that gets argued about from time to time in the gaming community. There's a side to this argument that believes that the more different kinds of settings that you have for your game, the more potential gamers you can bring in. The flip side of this argument is that by having so many settings, eventually gamers will quit caring so much about your releases and will just choose the setting that they like the best and that you're basically just shooting your business in the foot. I personally don't take one side or the other on that one. I'm just explaining the argument to you so you understand what I'm, what I'm talking about with it. By the mid-1990s, the argument could very easily be made that TSR was shooting itself in the foot from a business standpoint. But again, we'll deep dive all of that next week when we talk about TSR. But the result of the business mismanagement is that in 1997, Wizards of the Coast purchased TSR. See, I told you I'd get to that. This was an absolute bombshell announcement, even though there'd been rumors floating around the internet at the time. Role-playing gamers were concerned at the time about the purchase, as Wizards was known primarily for collectible card games, like Magic the Gathering which I know you've heard of that, and it was a very successful game. However, the concerns turned out to be unfounded. 
Wizards did make some adjustments to the teams and submission procedures and, and the like, but otherwise they really just continued to promote the hell out of AD and D and D and D. In fact, probably stronger than TSR had been able to do so previously, and the games just kept rolling on without missing a beat. Fast forward to 2000, two huge announcements were made. The first concerned the purchase of Wizards of the Coast by Hasbro. Yeah, that Hasbro. Again, the gaming community expressed concern that this purchase would lead to the end of gaming as we know it. And again, this was proven to not be true. Okay, it wasn't proven to be completely true. And the reason for that is because of the other major announcement. D&D 3rd Edition was released to the public, with all three books being released within a three-month period. Now, while I was really critical of the AD&D release schedule initially, I wasn't critical of this release for a big reason. The third edition of D&D set the game on its head. I mean, they changed everything. Races and classes were updated and changed. The armor class system was completely overhauled. Attacks and damage were changed. I mean, they literally did a full-on top-down change of the gaming system. So when Wizards announced it, they did gamers what I consider a great service. They released a free conversion piece that would assist players in trying to convert their AD&D characters to 3rd edition. Spoiler alert, it wasn't easy. It went way beyond square peg round hole and more like trying to play football with a golf ball. And no pads. Or helmets. And low light. In other words, it was more often than not easier to just completely redo your character and try to fit the spirit of what your previous character could do, rather than try to match everything up equally. I mean, the skills were different. Proficiencies were different. It was hard. But the positive out of all of this was that we no longer had two games under the umbrella. AD&D and D&D were rolled into one game under one umbrella, and we were back to one name for the game, Dungeons and Dragons. And despite all my bitching, once we got used to this new system, I got to admit, we were absolutely in love with it. In fact, had myself and another of my hardcore gaming friends not been such the charming SOBs that we are, we'd still be playing 3rd edition in my regular group instead of 5th edition. But that's a completely different story for a whole nother day. Oh, and I should point out, Greyhawk was the official setting for 3rd edition, and almost immediately, the Forgotten Realms were brought into this new edition as well. Copious amounts of material were released for both settings in order to make gamers feel more comfortable in the new system. And we were looking forward to seeing what these new rules could do in the long term. So, of course, Wizards announced an update. In 2003, Wizards announced what they called Edition 3.5. Now, in the books themselves, they called it a minor update with an incorporation of hundreds of rule changes, mostly minor, and an expansion to the core rulebooks. I call bullshit. And I do apologize for the profanity. I call it because the fact that it was given an addition number tells me, as it told a number of others, by the way, that the changes being made were significant enough to be considered a new version. One argument was that they just could have completed a reprint of the books with the adjustments made if, if all they really were were minor changes. In my opinion, they should have just called it 4th edition. 
That's why I said D&D has had six editions when I was talking about it earlier. But I'm digressing and going on the old man, you get off my lawn kind of rant, so let's just get back into the timeline. Around this time, a lot of folks were asking for another campaign setting. And quite frankly, most of those folks were hoping it'd be one of their favorites from second edition, like Dark Sun or Ravenloft or Spelljammer. However, Wizards went another direction, announcing a $10,000 contest to create a brand new campaign setting for D&D. In 2004, the winner of this contest was released to the public. Eberron was its name, and it brought several new ideas to the D&D game, including the Dragonborn, which are still a part of the game today. Eberron has continued to be an official D&D campaign setting, getting updates for both the 4th and 5th editions from Wizards. Fast forwarding to June 6, 2008, Wizards had another big announcement to drop. Fourth edition of D&D was released to the world with all three of the core rulebooks, that's Player's Handbook, Dungeon Master's Guide, and Monster Manual, being released on the same day. And while this was a big shift from the previous edition, it wasn't as huge a change as the one from second edition to third. However, there was one change that was made that turned out to be way controversial with a whole lot of gamers. This was the addition of powers, which were special things that each character could do on their turn, and it had a variety of different flavors. It allowed, it allowed for each class to be able to be so varied that you could literally have a party of 10 wizards and they would all be completely different. Also, the thing with the powers was that it would let you just do this special little thing that, that only a wizard could do or only a fighter could do. And it allowed for a variety of different things that your character could do depending on the situation. However, the controversy around powers seemed to link back to Hasbro as well. A number of gamers accused Hasbro of trying to turn D&D into a computer game. I mean, I lost track of the number of times I heard somebody talk about D&D turned into a hack-and-slash Bonnie Hall computer game. I didn't necessarily believe that to be true, but boy, were some of these people convincing. Side note, a hack-and-slash game is one based almost exclusively on fighting and killing everything in sight. Not a lot of roleplay, if any. Not a lot of heavy thought involved. It's basically, me, big guy with sword, go kill. Monty Hall, that's... H-A-U-L, not H-A-L-L, -L, like the old host of Let's Make a Deal. Yeah, if you don't know who that is, just toss it in Google. When you're done, you'll figure it out. Anyway, a Monty Hall game is a game where characters get a whole lot of treasure for not a whole lot of work. In other words, a lot like some video games where you can max out your treasure take if you know how to work the system. In the case of a Monty Hall D&D game, the work of the game really is just the DM setting it up to give you a whole lot of stuff for next to nothing. As you may have already figured out, opinions about 4th edition tend to be one extreme or the other, without a whole lot of variables in the middle. The group that loved it absolutely loved it, and they really don't understand why the haters want to hate. Many of them, in fact, absolutely refused to update to 5th edition. While some of them decided, okay, you know what, I'll be loyal, I'll update, but they took the parts of 4th edition that they really, really loved, figured out how to tweak them into 5th edition, and just brought them right on into the game with them. The group that hated it used the hack-and-slash Monty Hall argument that I mentioned before. For them, the addition of the powers is their proof 
or Hasbro's supposed influence on Wizards and the game is their proof. And damn it, they're not going to give an inch of ground on this. These folks basically refused to play 4th edition and went back to 3rd edition, 3.5 edition, and played it until 5th edition released because that was it. It was their own silent form of protest. Or for a lot of people I know, not really that silent. Personally, I have to admit, I kind of liked 4th edition, but I couldn't get my regular group into it. I did run a campaign for my nieces and their friends at the time, and they loved it. So, I mean, maybe this had something to do with your age and your gaming experience. I'm not sure about that, but I will say that in my opinion, the big reason it wasn't as successful as Wizards had hoped it would be was Wizards had also announced a huge online support for this game when the edition came out. This was supposed to be like an online character sheet, the ability for dungeon masters to build their encounters, and even more importantly, the ability to play D&D online with your friends with the adventures you created. Unfortunately, that whole online suite just never really came together. And I think a certain amount of that is going to have to be because of the limitations of the internet or the systems at the time. And yeah, maybe that's a bit of a naive, optimistic view, but you know what? That's the view I'm going to take. Period. So, after all of that, let's spring ahead to 2014. Fifth edition was released to the world, and again, all three core rulebooks came out on the same day. And again, there were some big differences between editions, including the removal of some of those more controversial things, including the powers from fourth edition. There were other changes that were made as well, but they didn't really impact the game as much as those changes that were made for fourth edition. Another huge support for this fifth edition is called D&D Beyond, and that's the official online support for the game, which, by the way, everybody can use for free as a character builder, a Dungeon Master's encounter builder, and digital dice. Also, it has an app you can use on your phone or tablet to go paperless if you so choose. Now, they still don't have the online game thing quite down, but due to a whole lot of programs developed since 4th edition came out, it's not really as big a deal as it was previously. Oh, and by the way, this is the point where I have to mention that no, Wizards of the Coast or Hasbro, they're not paying me a dime for this to talk about their stuff. I talk about it because I use it and I love it. So there you go. For me, I did. I fell in love from 5th edition basically from the minute I first read it. It made character creation really easy. It allowed for easier customization of characters, which the other systems allowed, but sometimes made it a hell of a lot more difficult to do. For my money, this is the game that I would use to teach someone who's never gamed how to play D&D. And... Wizards has taken the opportunity to tap into other popular phenomenons with this edition, releasing special editions tied to the Netflix hit Stranger Things and the popular cartoon Rick and Morty. Fifth edition is also the edition that is most often used when watching a D&D livestream. Yes, those exist. I'm going to talk all about them in another show. And we've continued to see the increase in gaming over the years, so much so that in 2020, during the pandemic, Wizards reported an increase of 85% in people reported gaming. They also saw an increase in sales during a time that other businesses were seeing a significant decrease, which to me kind of makes sense. After all, tell a bunch of gamers we can't leave the house and the first thing we're going to do is figure out how to play a game. In the case of my group, we used Discord and Roll20. Again, those are systems I'll talk about down the line. 
And this allowed us to keep our game rolling for about a year when we weren't able to play face-to-face -face at somebody's house. So as we talk about D&D in 2021, it's estimated that about 48 million people play the game around the world. It's been around for 47 years, seen six editions, and two really lousy movies. By the way, that might be about to change, as a new movie is currently in pre-production, with release coming in late 2022 or early 2023. Hell, if the podcast is still around by then, I'll do a full review of it. And we've got celebrities coming out of the woodwork to just announce their fandom for D&D. So it's finally cool to take your gamer geek flag and raise that sucker all the way up the pole. In my mind, you can't ask for more than that. So that's it for this week's tour. Next week, we're going to take a half step back and do a deep dive into the history of TSR so that you can really understand how good they and the gaming world had it and see how bad it went real fast. But before we go, I want to take a minute to do a little bit of housekeeping. First, I wanted to thank everybody for the kind words about last week's episode and a special shout out to my buddy Shane Welker for reminding me to introduce myself since I got in this huge hurry last week and just kind of forgot. And I did want to say I did hear everybody when you suggested I use a little theme music, but I spent a couple days surfing the internet looking for royalty-free stuff, and I really didn't see anything I liked. So until I can find a band or a singer-songwriter that's willing to work with me and help me out, we're just going to leave the show themeless, and, and I'll, I'll keep looking. Maybe I'll come up with something. Maybe I'll just play the harmonica real bad for a few minutes. I, I don't know. We'll figure it out. One more thing that was pointed out to me last week and was made even more obvious this week, I realized I've been using a lot of gamer talk. I've been using terms like armor class, experience points, and the like. And while I know there's a lot of gamers that listen to this, I also know there's folks listening who are more of a history-oriented type or, frankly, friends and family of mine that don't really game, but they're listening to this because it's a product I'm putting out, and they may not get all the terms. So, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to drop a bonus episode for you. So coming up this coming Tuesday, June 8th, I'm going to drop a bonus episode where I try to explain some of these terms to you. That's Tuesday, June 8th, right about 11 a.m. Central Time. Now, you're still going to get your TSR show next Friday, June 11th, about 11 a.m. Central Time. Not going to hose you out of that. So just make sure you follow us wherever you get your podcasts as we are just about everywhere, except iTunes, and I can't figure out what their deal is, but I'm still working on it. Hopefully next week I can announce that, that we're on iTunes. We also have a Facebook page, so you can stop by Role Playing History on Facebook to leave comments, or if you just really want to be a part of the family we're trying to build there. By the way, if you go in and try to leave a comment and you have issues, send a request. I'll take care of it. I'm approving them as soon as they come in or at least as soon as I get notifications they're coming in. And, as always, you can drop us an email at roleplayinghistorypodcast at gmail.com. I'm taking comments or questions about this show. I'm also taking ideas for future shows. And you never know what we might work out. So, with all the business done, I'll see you Tuesday at 11 a.m. for the bonus episode next Friday at 11 a.m. for the Deep Dive on TSR. So until next time, I'm Wayne Davis, and you're role-playing history.